This is episode 327, dated Friday, September 29th, 2023. You are listening to the In Perspective weekly podcast with Bob Branco and Peter O'Toole. Hi, everybody. Welcome once again to In Perspective. My name is Bob Branco. This is episode 327, dated Friday, September 29th, 2023. With us, as always, from Coos Bay, Oregon, Peter Alchul. Peter, what's going on today? Bob, I need to make you an official Oregonian. It's Oregon. (laughs) It's not Oregon. Oregon. (laughs) It's Oregon. Yes. Okay. I, I'll have I, to work I, on that. You have Thank to work you. on that because I've had to work on it for like the past three years. Anyway, uh, here it's sort of misty and dreary, but not the seven inches of rain that apparently you guys are getting on the East Coast. Oh, it's terrible. I think this is still the same storm that was here last weekend. Ophelia doesn't want to leave. It, it, it so, go, go back to Shakespeare's time. Anyway. I guess so. Anyway. I would like to thank those people for making it possible for In Perspective to be made available to the general public. We start out with Raymond Gay, our editor and producer. Thank you for what you do. Tom and Lynn from Rosie's Place chat line. Thank you for posting our programs up on bulletin board number 15. Our media sources, thank you very much for airing us when you do. We really appreciate that. And finally, Jacqueline Sylvia from JS Web Solutions who archives our In Perspective podcasts on my website. All you have to do to find them is go to www.brancoevents.com, arrow down until you get to In Perspective podcasts, click on them, and then you will see most of our archives from latest to earliest. Merci, Jackie. And also, many thanks to Herbie, who took the time to be our host for today's program. Thank you for that as well. We have back again on our show one of our regulars, one of our staples, as they call him, Congressman John Laboutlier. How are you, John? Congressman, how's it going? Thank you. Rob, um, um, thank you. Thanks for having me. I love the show. I always look forward to it. I have it in my calendar, and I look forward to it as the weeks um, count down till the next time I'm on, and I just love it, and it's a great way to end the week and begin the weekend, even though I'm floating away. And it's also a great way to end the federal fiscal year, I suppose, if you want to put it that way. Hoping, of course, that government will not be shut down at all as of Monday or as of Sunday. So what is it? Well, as, as we're doing this on Friday afternoon and it's tomorrow night, Saturday night at midnight is the time when it's going to shut down. It sounds to me almost a hundred percent guaranteed that it is going to shut down. That there's no movement that I hear about, but who knows? I mean, maybe there's something going on privately. Wrapped up in it, I guess, is the fate of Speaker Kevin McCarthy, because in the only way he can get a majority vote in the House to keep the government open is to work with the Democrats. Several of them will happily vote for this. A lot of them will vote for it. But the hard-right Republicans have told McCarthy, if you work with the Democrats, we're going to throw you out. Now, how do we progress to this point so often of a government shutdown? What leads us to this? Well, they're all the same. They're all, and I hate to say this as a lifelong Republican, all these uh, government shutdowns are forced by the right of the Republican Party. 
And there is no point to it because you know the government's going to reopen. You know that everybody that isn't getting paid during the shutdown will get their back pay caught up for them. So what's the point of it? You know, I mean, it's just it's a stupid. And that's what's happened to the right in, in, in American politics. It's become stupid. It's not smart. It's not ahead of the game. It's just plain emotional, not filled with brain power. And so they're all lashing out. They want to cut this and that. They don't seem to realize, yeah, the Republicans do control narrowly the House, but they do. But the Democrats have the Senate, so that means you got to compromise right away with them. And then the White House is obviously controlled by a Democrat. And these 25 Republicans in the Freedom Caucus, Caucus 23, whatever it is, they seem oblivious to the reality of how the government works. And they'd rather just say, oh, I just want to shut it down, blow it up. We don't need it, you know. And then it'll be reopened and we'll be back to somewhat normal in a month or three weeks or whatever. It, it seems to me, Congressman, I mean, you're right. This has been going on since, I don't know, when, the 80s, maybe the 90s, whenever. It 90s, 90s. Yeah, with, with Newt Gingrich and so on and so forth. It seems to me somehow worse. Uh, my, my sense is that the, the, the 27 or 25 or whatever it was, they know how the system works. They're doing this deliberately. You know, uh, they, they want to, uh, they want to get media coverage in their district and come across as these hardcore, you know, tough guy or tough woman, whatever people who are standing up for a cause. I, it, it seems to me somehow worst. Uh, am I? Am I matching things or it's the same? Oh, thing. no, I think you're right. But, you know, think, right. Thinking back, you know, this thing is now the, the Newt Gingrich thing was a little different. He did shut it down for whatever reason. And then Clinton got a funny thing. We get going on an impeachment of Clinton for lying about sex and a mistress and blah, blah. And before you know it, they throw Newt Gingrich out because he had a mistress. And he's a hypocrite. Okay, so he's gone. They lose the House to the Democrats eventually. But but we have two more Republican speakers who go through the same thing McCarthy's going through right now. We have Boehner and Ryan, both of whom were good Republicans for their whole careers, both of them. But the right didn't like them. And the right took them on and bedeviled both of them and uh, ruined Boehner, and then basically they didn't totally ruin Ryan, but he gave it up. He couldn't stand it anymore. And here, McCarthy's not giving up, but McCarthy is being ruined the same way. It's the, the right punishes a Democratic, excuse me, the right punishes a Republican speaker for making a deal with the Democratic president. So when Boehner made a deal, with Obama, that was the end of Boehner. They, it got so bad, the right, which was then the Tea Party, they were called, same group, same people. Now they're the Freedom Caucus. Now they're MAGA. But they're all the same. And they told Boehner, you cannot have a meeting or a phone call without President Obama, without one of us being in the meeting or on the call with you. That, that's how crazy that got. Now, that hadn't happened here, but we had a meeting and a series of negotiations in April, May, and June, I think, with McCarthy and President Biden at the White House, and they made a deal. And they made a deal on the 
top line number of what the government would spend this fiscal year that's beginning to, day after tomorrow. They made a deal. And these 25 Republican congressmen are sabotaging the deal, saying, no, we can't spend that money. We're not going along with it. Yeah, and so it's crapping out this weekend over breaking a deal. The thing is, Congressman, because I know you've talked about this uh, uh, regularly, even back in the 80s um, on the Bob Grant show. We have to show some res- financial restraint, right? We have this ma- massive budget deficit, and it seems to be getting worse. We need to do something about it. It just seems to me that the, these 27 hardcore people are just making the whole system worse. Because well, they're, but, but they're keep not, in mind, they're not negotiating the 20- with me. But, but the 27 hardcore people couldn't have cared less about government spending three years ago when right. they were still in Congress and Trump was president. Bang, they spent money like nuts. And the ones that were there 20 years ago when George W. Bush was president, and he had a Republican Congress for his first six years, right. they spent money like crazy. So the yeah. bottom line is they're total frauds and hypocrites. They'll spend when they're in power and rail against spending when they're not in power. And so how do you take them seriously? Yeah. I don't take yeah. them seriously. I, I, but, but it is a real issue. Uh, and I don't know how, how you address it because we, we are sort of wired to keep our citizens happy and we should, you know, there, there are really important things. I just worry about the deficit. You know, it, it it's got to come down at some point. But, well, you're talking about the national debt. National the debt. actual debt, debt. debt, the deficit Sorry. has come down. It has, yeah. Uh, the last couple of years, uh, annually. But you're right. The accumulated national debt, which is around $33 trillion. When yours truly was in Congress, we, I believe, it was the first trillion. And that was 40 years ago. So in the 40 years, a lot of whom have been Republican presidents, and Republican Congresses, and of course, and Democrats too, mm-hmm. has gone up by 32 trillion. It's incredible. Yeah. But also, the country and the economy is way bigger. Yeah. You know, so yeah, 33 trillion is humongous. We're never going to balance that out, but uh, the interest payment on that thing is the second or third largest item every year, I believe, in the federal government. And that's what is hurting us. We're spending a lot of money on debt service we need to you know i think we need to reverse the trend that's what i would like to say is slowly start paid paying down the national debt but you can't do that till you run a surplus we haven't run a surplus on the federal level since 97 or 98 clinton Clinton. yeah clinton was president the republicans had the house john Kasich was uh uh, chairman of the budget committee. Now, I don't know how much any of that had to do with the people in the government. I think it was the economy was so good that it's spinning out huge tax revenue to the federal government. And that's what reduces deficits is the private economy contributing so much tax revenue that government is then doing well. That's really the only way out of these messes is we got to have the government get more tax money because we're making so much money. Part of the problem, I think, Congressman, is all the money that I'm not saying that all the states, because I'm not sure how many states are sanctuary states. 
you have wide open borders and you have migrants coming in by endless amounts of numbers. I can't even count. I know here in Massachusetts, Governor Maura Healy is asking for 250 some odd, uh, I can't think of the figure, a month to house people who need shelter based on Massachusetts laws. Yeah, yeah. Same thing here. New York City is just going crazy over all these migrants that are being shipped up here from the border by the federal government, by the way. These people are being relocated around the country to spread the burden of all these people coming in here. I believe last month, September or August, I'm not sure when they say last, I guess last month would be August still, 300,000 people illegally crossed the, well, crossed the border. They're not determined if they're illegal till they have their asylum hearing, but most of them uh, do not get asylum. What do you think we ought to do about this crisis? Well, if I, if I was a benign dictator and I could do anything I wanted, I would go to the president of Mexico and I'd say, look, I'll pay you whatever the hell we got to pay for you to block these people from transversing your country and getting to our southern border. Either you want me to, we'll pay you some money to keep them in Mexico or you want to close your southern border to these people coming from Central America, you do that. But we have to stop them from coming here this way. But we it's not probably, only Mexico. Well, only- yeah, yeah. No, but they don't get here unless they come through Mexico. The border is with Mexico. So if you could magically stop them from arriving at the Mexican-American border, boom, there's no problem. That, by the way, most of them are not Mexicans. Right. They're Central Americans who are coming up here through Mexico. That's why I say I would try to work with the Mexican government. And if we have to pay Mexico, pay them to stop these people from ever getting to our border. I, I, but that's, I, I, if I, that's if I'm a benign dictator, which I'm not, and we don't have that. <laughs> uh, the, the, the opposite, uh, to play devil's advocate for a second, the, the, the opposite side is many of these folks are, are are leaving uh, terrible conditions. I, I understand that there are folks coming here with drugs and so on and so forth, but most of those are coming here by trucks and, you know, they don't have to cross the border. They can, they can go through with trucks or airplanes or whatever. But, but it seems to me that a lot of these folks really are in desperate circumstances. That's the first issue. The second issue is we need workers. You know, uh, we, we, it's my understanding is that, in, um, Employers are having trouble hiring people, especially in the, in the construction arena. And a part of that is because uh, we have people who don't want to do those jobs. But part of it is because we have comparatively few people in, in the compared to say 20 years ago of working age, you know, younger, younger people. So we really do need some of these folks to do some of this stuff. You're very low, Peter. Can you hear me? A little louder. Is that I, I hear, I hear him perfectly. Okay. Listen, I agree with that. We do need more workers, but we had le- we had legal ways for people to get visas and come here to work in every field, including agriculture, farming, construction, whatever. We can't just let three hundred thousand willy nilly every month in and say, you know, w- w- some of them will work. They do want to work. I'll give you that, but some do. No, they, these think, people think, come here to work. Yeah, I really they work. They don't come here to mooch. They're here to work. But 
And and then Peter's right. They're escaping terrible stuff and Venezuela, whatever the thing is. It's bad down there. But you know what? We can't solve every problem in the world. That's right. We just can't do it. Now, we can bring some people in here as we need them. But, my God, what are we doing to the communities all around the country if we're flooding them with poor people who have no money? Who's going to pay for this? No, I, so it's got to be reasoned out. This thing is out of control. No, no, I agree with you. I, I you know, I'm not, I, I think, I think you're right. The thing is that our, our immigration system is screwed up beyond repair. I think I saw a stat somewhere that said they're like two years behind dealing with court hearings. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. just, it's an over. Well, there aren't enough, there aren't enough immigration judges who are not regular judges. They're appointed by the justice department. They're not. They don't have to be confirmed by Congress and all that, but we just don't have enough of them. So if you're, you know, some guy coming in today illegally and you say, I want asylum, if you say it, you get an asylum hearing. And but used to be you were either thrown back out or locked up pending your asylum hearing. But we don't do that anymore. So we let them go and they run around America for a year and then they never show up for their asylum hearing. And they're here. And who can keep track of several million illegals that are working and living and kids are going to school? And before you know it, they're part of the community. And, and valuable parts of the community. Yeah. Most of them really are, are strong family people with, with good values and all of that, you know, uh, but they should be here. I mean, it's, that's the paradox of this, of this thing. And here in Massachusetts, well, our governor is encouraging citizens, residents, to take some of these people into their own homes. Well, that's not bad. I mean, wouldn't you rather have someone take people into their home and take care of them than taking over a local hotel and putting them I, in there? I, I have no problem with that, but we don't know the incomes of the households that are being talked about already, number one. And number two, you're talking about total strangers. Well, that's their choice, though, Bob. If Mr. and Mrs. Smith want to have a family come live with them. No one's no one's forcing them to do it. I mean, Bob, I, I, Bob, you know. Bob, I, I remind you, uh, and I speak for myself, that the Catholic, the Catholic, the Catholic uh, religion and the Christian religion encourages people to treat uh, uh, immigrants uh, humanely. You know, it's it's all scattered throughout. What, 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 what does I agree it say with that. on the What does it say on the Statue of Liberty? That that too. Give us your give, me a poor, give us your downtrodden. I mean, yeah, but 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 that's that's the spirit of America, and I believe in that spirit up to a point. Yes, it doesn't say give us your poor, give us your downtrodden until we're bankrupt. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, that that's fair. I, but I, but I guess my my complaint is that the immigration system is being deliberately. Uh, uh, sabotaged by, I think, both sides for political purposes. There's got to be a way of improving the system. So as you said, these visas can be, uh, better uh, acquired more, more quickly. You know, sometimes it takes two years to get these, 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 uh, uh, you know, these visas. You know, I, I, I have a friend of mine who, uh, was here on a, on a green card, uh, trying to get a green card, which came here legally. And it took years and years and expensive lawyers to to go through. Oh, it's like eight years. No, eight what, years. Yeah, it, but that's crazy. And they did it legally. And yes. 
and they should be rewarded. We've heard this expression a million times. These illegals, they now call them undocumented, but they're, they're the same thing. They are cutting the line. Yeah. On the other hand, they're desperate, and, and yeah. I understand it. That's why there's got to be, and I'm sorry, I, just, I don't want them to come to our border. I don't want us to have to decide this. We Enough is enough. You know, and they're going to have to go somewhere else. Can I jump in for a minute, or do we need to wait? What's that, Herbie? No, that's Jane. I think Uh, we got to. We have to wait, Jane. Okay, I didn't know. That's fine. Okay, no, no, no worries. So, uh, I want to get into another topic. uh, I've been thinking about you for the past however long it's been. We have a a lot of Congress folks who are in their seventies, eighties, nineties. Uh, you have Joe Biden, who's, who's, you know, if he's reelected, it's going to be the, you know, the oldest president of all time. You have President Trump. He already is. He already is. He already is. He already is. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for that. You have President Trump, uh, who's going to be, you know, and there's a lot of talk about what do you do with some of these folks who may not have all their faculties or may, or may have them and are not coming across that way. How do you sort of address that, you know, gerontocracy they're calling it these days? What, what are your thoughts about that? Uh, the voters are going to have to decide it. Yeah. If they want to reelect someone who's on a walker, like whatever, Diane Feinstein, who just died today, is yeah. a great record in public service, who clearly stayed too long. You know, the voters have to be the ones to decide. No one else should decide. That's the way our system is. And we don't have age limits on the upper end. We only have one on the lower end, 25 for the House, 35 for President, 30 for the Senate. And that's I don't think those are getting changed at the lower end. No. And there's no upper end for anything. Well, we do have term do limits think? for presidents. Right. We do. I was going to say that. Uh, uh, yep. Please wait. We haven't invited our participants yet. Well, we do have term limits. You're right, Bob, but that doesn't have anything to do with age, you know. So, so, uh, you know, Bill Clinton was term limited at it out and was finished being president and he was in his early fifties. Yep. And Biden was the oldest man ever elected to be president right from the get go. Reagan ended his presidency. I think he was 77. I think he was 69 when he got elected. I Donald think. Trump was 74, I believe, wasn't he? Mm, I'll see. He's 77 now. So, so I guess he left office at 74. Yeah. 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 And, and Biden just turned, he's about, uh, next 80. month he's going to be 81. 81. 81. Yeah. I guess what really disturbs me on both sides is how this age thing is being weaponized and, and sort of, uh, trash talked, you know, uh, you know, Biden is, is doing some strange things here and there, but I, from my perspective, he's, you know, he's, he still has his thoughts in order and it seems to be doing a, you know, solid job. Um, President Trump was, you know, was trashed for other reasons. You know, he was viewed as mentally ill, uh, by people who know nothing about psychiatry. And so we're using these mental illness and age as a, as, as a, as a, as a weapon. And I just find that really distasteful. Yeah. Well, there is, by the way, there is an ageism issue in this country. There's a bias against older people. However, politically, 
you got to be careful about that because the older people are living longer yep. and they vote in the highest percentage of any group in the country. Younger people vote less, older people vote the most. So the older vote, 60 and over, say, is a very potent force. And healthcare has kept all of us alive longer, thank God. So you vote, you know, longer into your life, obviously. And it's not to be underestimated. You know, it's not unrelated. ABC just started running, I think, last night. Uh a new bachelor series featuring a guy that's 72 years old. Really? Yeah. It's called the golden bachelor. And I think he's got like 25 possible women to choose from average age, like 67. So but forget all that. The important thing is if, and we don't know yet because it aired the first time last night, if the ratings are good for this thing, it may prove to political people and advertisers and business that the market you're ignoring it and should be focusing on are people 60 and over, the boomers, the older people. Because, you know, advertisers say, ah, oh, the demo we want is 25 to 40. Well, well you look at the sports talk shows. I can name one in Boston. They cater to the younger people. You hear this all the time. Uh, 20 to 40 or whatever it is. The advertisers cater yeah, to people. Same thing. Right. Yeah. Well, that may be a mistake. I don't know. I mean, I, that's sports. I don't really know, but I'm just saying if you look at the country and the, uh, profile of it, there are more older people as a percentage of the voting public because they live longer and therefore there are more of them. And so to ignore them or trash them or trash an older politician may tick some of those voters off. I don't know. This is all unchartered territory. Do you think there's a connection between what you were saying about the baby boomers and a lot of the elderly being the biggest voting market and and incumbents remaining in office? Well, (laughs) Incumbents generally remain in office because once you are the incumbent, you have such an advantage with name, ID, and harnessing the power of the government to promote you, and you get in the news all the time and all that kind of thing. Gerrymandering. Uh, that too. Oh, every, that's for House people. But, yeah, yeah exactly. Senate people. Right. Go, I mean, you know, it's just rarely do incumbents get defeated unless they're wave elections. So it's all part of the same thing. And the longer you're around, I mean, I'm, I'm taken today because we've been inundated with it since early this morning. Diane Feinstein, who had an unbelievable career and got, I think, elected six times to the U.S. Senate, I believe, or five or six, which is a lot. And, you know, I mean, but it got to the point where people in California, it's like every single person there knew who she was and what she what job she had. Uh because she'd been around so long, her name ID got to be so high, uh, and, you know, it's an accumulated thing. You, if someone's in the news all the time for 30 years, <laughs> it's going to add up. And the, so there's a benefit to being around a long time, but then at some point it becomes a detriment. Let's look at her the last year. The poor woman yeah. was gaga. Yeah. She didn't know anything. 
And when they ever talked to her, it was painful. This was about the most accomplished political person you'd ever see until the last year or so. And, but she is 90. And when she was 85, she was totally fine. It just happened in the last year or two. Well, you remember Strom Thurmond. He was 90-something, yeah. Wasn't he close to 100? Might have been. Yeah, might have been. When he left office or died, I forgot which one came first. I don't remember. But yeah, I don't remember. I, I'm wondering if he had all of his faculties uh, at the end. I'm not sure. I don't remember that part of it. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a great movie that I haven't thought about for a while that you, your listeners and you guys ought to see. Do you remember this movie? Late 70s, 79. The Seduction of Joe Tynan. Oh, yeah. Starring Alan Alda as a U.S. senator. And in there, Melvin Douglas plays an L. I think I'm right. I think it's in there. I think, I think I'm right. Melvin Douglas plays an elderly senator who's going gaga, who in the middle of a hearing or something just starts speaking French. Oh. <laughs> yeah, because he was out of it, you know. And, I think it was in that movie. It's a great movie. But, um, yeah, you watch some of these guys. They look pretty bad on TV. There are a lot of young ones who do great, but some of these older guys look pretty bad. But some of them have their marbles and know a lot of stuff, too. So, Congressman, I want to talk about sort of the whole issue of uh, the world of work, employment, and especially the whole union thing that seems to be uh, reemerging. You know, we have the auto strike. We had the... Yep. Writer strike. Uh, there seems to be a lot of sort of a lot more anger uh, uh, between uh, uh, of the uh, workers to their bosses and the management. Uh, the income d- gap is a lot wider than it has been. Um, what is your sort of general sense of how that all is is playing itself out? Well, I happen to be. I've just written a piece for the Messenger that's coming out on Monday, uh, and the Messenger is the new. Uh, the Hill newspaper. This is the same as the Hill, but it's the new version of it. Same management. They left the Hill and started this new one called The Messenger. And they publish every day online. And I'm doing a piece. I've seen your pieces, by the way. They're terrific. Well, thanks. And and I got a new one on Monday because on Monday, which is October 2, Bob, I'm going to break your heart when I remind you of this. October 2. 45 years ago was October 2, 1978. And that was the day my book, my first book called Harvard Hates America was published, which is a huge day in my life <clears throat> to have a book published and all that. And I was doing the radio interviews and everything in New York City. And then when the afternoon came, I was finished in the city, got in my car and I can remember I was on 96th Street heading toward the FDR drive to come home to Long Island. And I had the radio on. When he's beat the Red Sox. Bucky bleeping dent oh, yes. hits the ball over the wall. Yaz goes down on one knee because he knows this is bad. And an inning later, pop-up, uh, Greg Nettles catches it to put him away. And that was one of the greatest seasons and games ever, Yankees, Red Sox. That was the day. Anyway, okay. So I'm writing a piece this sun, uh, this Monday, October 2, on the 45th anniversary, where I bring up 
things that went on when I was at Harvard College as an undergrad and then Harvard Business School, which I went to after Harvard undergrad, one of which was uh, at the business school, this attitude that I ended up calling the big business mentality, where we're all being sort of trained at Harvard Business School, that your job is one thing and one thing only. Maximize return to the shareholder sure. at all costs, at all costs. Yes. And the greed and all this that I witnessed was, you know, shocking. Well, okay. Here we are 45 years later and you have the auto strike, auto worker strike, UAW. And in the paper, I read that Mary Barra, the CEO of General Motors made 361 times the average salary at General Motors. The average salary is $80,000 a year. She made $29 million. Now, to me, that is one of the biggest problems in this country. You just mentioned it. The income disparity in this country is crazy. And yet you go back, you come out of World War II, and we sort of remake the world, and we remake our economy and all that. That did not happen. Bosses did not make 361 times the average employee. Couldn't do it, wouldn't do it, never even thought of it. But it's gotten out of whack that what these people are getting paid and what they think about and what it means to the workers. It's just, it's insane. So, yeah, I think it's a big problem. But I think that's why you're having more strikes. The uh, writers won their strike. They won. They got almost everything they wanted. And that's good uh, in that case. And in the auto worker strike, they're going to get they're going to end up getting a decent deal. It's going to take a while. Um, but the uh, the the new mantra of the far right is to say what's the real problem in the auto industry is electric vehicles. And that Biden and the mandate to have electric vehicles, blah, 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 is is what's causing all the trouble. And I don't buy a word of it. But we got to get ahead of this thing because electric vehicles are the future for global warming and everything else. And that's where it's going to be. Well, everybody's my- going to have to adjust to it. Well, here's my question. If the environmentalists are so worried about pollutants, what are we going to do with all this lithium from the electric car batteries? Well, I don't know, but they'll figure it out. It's not going to be the same as it will not be allowed to pollute the atmosphere the way gas guzzling cars do and coal plants and all that. All that stuff's going to go in our lifetime. It's all going to go. I don't know. It might take another 15 years, but when we're going to get up one day and realize, you know, something. 90% 90% of people are buying have to and are happily buying electric cars. There are no real gas stations anymore. They're charging stations. They're going to make better batteries that are safer and longer charging. This is the trend. It's obvious. It's coming. And talk to anybody who has a Tesla. Anybody. They'll tell you, everyone I've asked, best car I ever had. Best car I ever had. So... Apparently they're, they're cheaper to make, right? They don't need as many workers, which, which is why the auto workers are concerned that they might lose jobs, which is a legitimate concern as far as I can tell. From what yeah, we well, yeah. but hey, 
they'll still be if they're made here, there'll be plenty of jobs and so forth. And, you know, the other option is have them made overseas and then none of these people work. Yeah, well, that's right. Yeah, you're listening to In Perspective. This is Bob Branco, and we have Peter Altschuler as our co-host, and our guest is former New York Congressman John LeBoutlier. I thought I would bring our participants on the show, many of whom may would like to ask questions of our guest. Jane T., you are up, and Belle Mills, you are on deck. All right, Jane. Yes, and thank you, Herbie, for, um, I didn't know, because I heard the voice the well, that's okay. machines say unplug, but here uh, I am. Yeah. First of all, I do not like any of how Texas, where I live, is handling the border issue. I don't like, well, I don't like two primary people in charge of it. So I guess I'm not supposed to name them. Um, Why not? So it's Governor Abbott you don't like, right? Yeah. And I do not like, um, Ted Cruz. I wish he would just leave the planet. Well, then vote, vote next year for oh. Colin Allred, who's running against him. I'll vote for just about anybody. But I, I really struggle with all of the things you have mentioned. I want our, our, um, immigration process revamped, reevaluated. Uh, it just, and I wish I could be a lawyer and, and help with that. Boy, I would because we need the rules to be enforced and followed and to matter. And yes, we need workers. Um, we have a lot of Americans who don't want to do some of the basic work that is going to make a difference. That's a nice way of saying a lot of them just don't want to do it. They're lazy, but I, by the way, did you, have you seen that, you know, I, I what you're saying in the, um UAW demands oh, in their yeah. contract negotiations, one of the things they're asking for, which hasn't gotten a lot of attention, they want a 32-hour work week. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, four four-day work week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why do you so, suppose that is? I don't know. I mean, I I, you know, mind. this if there's if if they're worried about fewer jobs to make electric cars. Why are you saying, but we know what we want. We want to work less. Yeah. I, I would and think the argument more. would be we'll work more to get yeah. the job. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I agree. I, 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 I would, I would, I'm going to go so you all can talk it through, but I really have appreciated um, your comments. I keep sitting back here going, yes, mm-hmm, I get that. <laughs> well, stay <laughs> on. Stay, keep well, listening. I, I have to. That's 20 to. minutes to go. No, I gotta go though, but I really appreciate it and I'll try to listen to the podcasts when they show up. So. Thank you, Jane. Thank, Thank you. you. As always. Yes. Thank you. Peter, so you I've, have something to say? I, I, yeah, I, I wanted to say, I, I would be more in favor of that thing if they, if they want to do a 40 hours in four days, a you know, four day work, which seems to be a trend in the business world these days. A lot of organizations are, are experimenting with that. That might be a possibility, but this idea of, you know, a 32 hour week strikes me as a bit much. Well, and it also may be, I mean, maybe, like you say, four days, 10 hours a day. They're saying four days, eight hours a day, 32. But it also, since COVID, everything's changed about working, working in an office. This is, of course, mostly factory work. Uh, and you can't really run a factory loosely. You got to have a schedule for when we're rolling the assembly line. 
Um, in the end, it's not going to be that that is the deal breaker. It's money that's the deal breaker. Yeah. And they're going to have to cough up more money and pay these people more. And they need to be paid more with inflation and all. And apparently, remember, in the auto disaster of 08 and 09, where they all virtually went broke without federal bailouts, a big part of that was the unions did givebacks to keep the jobs they had. And now they want that back. And frankly, they ought to get it back. Yeah. You know. That's- Okay, thank you for that. Who's we have guy? somebody else, Herbie. As a matter of fact, we have several people. So, right. uh, Bell Mills, you are up, and Donna, you are on deck. Bell, welcome. Hello. There, there she go. is. Okay. Um, a lot of countries have immigration restriction, and I read an article some years ago by a Japanese writer who just wished that their uh, policies. Um, as far as uh, immigration um, is concerned, were, was concerned, uh, would be, were um, improved, you know, so that they could get um, immigrants in uh, Japan. So I thought that was interesting. And why do you think that President Biden opened the borders or, you know, really just I mean, maybe I missed something somewhere. Well, I, yeah, I've heard people say that he opened the borders. I don't think he did. I think he just didn't lock people up the way Trump did. The kids in the cages, the family separation policy. He just wasn't going to do that. Now, he has made an arrangement with the Mexican government so that a lot of the asylum seekers were staying on the other side of the border and being processed over there before coming here. Now, I don't know what's happened. Maybe when Title 42 expired in the spring, which was the we, the federal government was allowed to keep people out uh, because of COVID. But the courts made that thing end, I think, in April or May, I forget. And ever since then, it's been an increase in people coming across. Um you know, but Biden is a kind man. He's not cruel. He doesn't want people drowning, dying in the desert and all that. And neither do any of us, I hope. No, I right. mean, they are human beings. Okay. So they're struggling to figure out an immigration situation, but just they're not, you know, they're not criminals for God's sakes. They're desperate people. But again, we can only take so many. You know, it's just we don't have the means for everything. So, Congressman, I, I just wanted to relate a, uh This reminds me of a show I heard on Fresh Air on NPR about back in the when Clinton was president, they were trying to figure out a way of addressing this immigration problem. And they brought together a bunch of experts with a variety of perspectives. They came together. They developed a, developed a, a solution. Uh, and uh, and Congress torpedoed it. Yeah. You know, and, and uh, you know, I wish that something similar could happen this time, but Congress would, would go along with it. You know, well, the way to do it now, the way to do it, the way to do it, if you really want to, if we really want to fix immigration, it's like we did under the Reagan administration with the Democratic Congress, Democratic Senate, I think. We wanted to fix Social Security because it was running out of money. So they appointed a commission with the understanding 
that Congress, both parties in both bodies, House and Senate, would adopt this recommendation no matter what. And they wouldn't play politics with it. Same thing for the base closing commission mm-hmm. in the mid-90s, where we had to close military bases inside the United States. We didn't need them anymore. Cold War was over. Berlin Wall had come down. Soviet Union was gone. We don't need all these bases. we got to get rid of them. But how are we going to decide which one goes? And we adopted the same thing. The base closing commission studied it and recommended that Fort blah, blah has to go and blah. And Congress just approved it, whether they liked it or not. That was the deal. Same thing needs to be done with immigration, which is we need to get a bipartisan commission of House guys, Senate people, put them on there and have the understanding whatever they come up with, Congress will adopt and the president will sign. And that's it. That takes the politics out of it. And that what's killing this thing is neither side wants to do it because they like to hammer the other side exactly with the political cudgel. And we, if you really want to fix it, it's fixable. But if, you know, some people will be unhappy. But generally, a good deal is everybody's only a little unhappy. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, uh, who, who's next? All right, we've got fifteen minutes and um, two people to get through here, and. Um, so, Donna, you are up. Eric, you are on deck. All right. Hey, so, Donna. Hello. So, <laughs> there's a lot going on with government right now. Uh, what's crazy is it looks like bar, bar, uh, bipartisan has, it looks like that idea has died. Cause they're, they're, they're not doing it. But what's really sad we're getting ready to go into a shutdown and our lawmakers are going to be paid and a hell of a lot of people are going to not be paid. What is wrong with that? Everything. Why, why isn't there something in our constitution does that does not make that happen? That stops that from happening. That should never ever happen. Well, you know, it's a good point, but here's the thing. Everything is political. Everything comes back to winning and losing elections. These 27 or whatever it is, Freedom Caucus people that are driving this shutdown for this weekend, they're different than most of the people on this call tonight. And oh yeah. Oh yeah. They they have grown up in a world where they hate the federal government. They hate it. Yep. And I don't know why. That's another I guess they issue. want to work in it. <laughs> yeah, they want to work in it, and they love that 166000 a year they're getting, and they don't have any other income. And so you're right. They're going to get paid even if everyone else doesn't for a while. But I wish we could adopt a law that says if you vote for a shutdown, you don't get paid during the shutdown. Mm-hmm. That, that, that would, but forget it. That's not happening because they have to vote the laws in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah. but something's got to be fixed with that. There, 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 there's got to be a way to fix that because I've seen this happen before. I've lived through other shutdowns that I was involved with and this is crazy. And then we have people who have to come and like, like that, um, chef does. He comes when the federal workers are not getting paid and he has to help. Yeah, 
Mm-hmm. Because hero, those guy. people can't afford to eat. So, you know, there, there's got to be something that can be done to, it's like the lawmakers don't live in our world. They make the rules, but they don't have to live them. And that's just wrong. Well, the thing that ought to be done, and I'm amazed I'm saying this, but next year, and I think we're headed there, is in the election, the country needs to punish the Republicans for doing this by flipping the House back to Democratic control. Oh, yeah. Because this, well, this shutdown's coming out of the House, not out of the Senate. Yeah. Well, both parties and, need to elect new people to be running for president. It's well, that's okay. The president thing's a different yeah. thing. And yeah. as of today, it looks like they're not as of today. It looks like they're going to nominate Biden almost definitely and Trump almost definitely. And we're headed for a year of those two running against each other again. Uh, yeah, you know, people, people, people are not happy vote. with that, but how many people are going to vote? You wonder. Oh, I think a huge vote. I think in the end, Donald Trump is the greatest vote generator, both for himself and against himself. And that's what he did. He elected Joe Biden. Biden didn't get elected. Trump elected Biden. Mm-hmm. He kicked off so many voters mm-hmm. that they streamed out to vote for Biden against Trump. Same thing's going to happen with another little juicer added in, Dobbs, the abortion ruling. That You add that on to Trump, and the amount of people are going to come out to vote against the Republicans on Trump and on abortion and some who will remember this government shutdown and this crazy stuff that's going on, it's it's going to win for the Democrats. Congressman, I wish I was as optimistic as you are, but all the polls I'm seeing, and I realize the polls are early, you know, you can't take too much, but everything, all the polls I'm seeing is that right now it's a, it's a dead heat between President Trump. Uh, Forget it. Uh, mm. that, it means, Peter, let's just look. Every special election in the last year, every one of them, and state referenda, every time voters have voted, uh, both for state rep, U.S. rep, or a referenda in a state or a constitutional amendment, Wisconsin, Ohio, everyone, Republican areas, everything. They're going Democrat on every single one. And then you get to last November. All the polls said, oh, there's going to be a 60-vote, 60-seat red wave in the House. None of it happened. The Democrats had a great year for an off-year election. Uh, in the first year of a presidency, it, it's the polling is not finding the voters anymore. Yeah, they're not finding them. Yeah, and we and that, and that that's what makes it sort of interesting because polls are just not reliable anymore. You know, right. well, I have or, a feeling or, or, or so much so you, much for statistics. Well, well no, but if you believe in, I believe in polling and stats. But here's the thing: with the advent of cell phones yep. and the uh, Dissolution of most people having landlines. Finding registered voters is much more expensive. You have to make many more phone calls to get Joe Smith on the phone. So here's how polling works. If you're a newspaper, you have a budget to do a poll for for November, say, for your paper or for a TV station. You have to spend that money, and, you know, you don't have that much money, and you – you try to do the best job you can 
and you want to get a sample of 400 people that answer your questions, you might have to call 5,000 people to get 400 registered voters. If you're a political campaign and you have a big budget, you do a much better job of finding and selecting voters to sample. And that's why, and they have, you know, some polls can cost 50,000 bucks, but a, a media entity can't spend 50,000 to do a poll. They don't do it. They, they go much cheaper. And then the other thing they're doing, and you read it at the bottom of the polling is they sample fewer people. So they have a much higher margin of error. Yeah. If you look on TV, when they put a poll on there, look at the bottom, anything that's over 3% margin of error. Don't pay a lot of attention to it. Uh, and some of them I've been watching have a 5.9% margin of error. So that means if Bob Branco is beating John LeBoulier 40 to 30, you're beating me by 10 points, but the margin of error is 5.9. That means you might not be beating me by anything. It's 5.9 times 2 is basically 12. That that swing could be twelve points. Yeah, which means so you could be up by two. I could be up by two, or you or could be up not by ten, but by twenty-two. Twenty-two. Yeah. yeah. So what good is that? That's a useless poll. And I would just put all the polling aside and not even think about it this year and or into next year. And just when the voters actually vote, we have some more special elections coming up and a couple of elections in November for governors and stuff. Let's see if this trend continues where the Democrats are winning everything. We have about or they're running, they're running ahead of where they normally run if they don't win. We have, we have about three or four more minutes to go. I would like to get Eric in there. Was there anybody else after Eric Herbie? No, there is not. Okay. Eric, it's your turn. Welcome All to right. This, this has really been interesting. I always like it because, Governor, you have a biased opinion, uh, and I love it. My concern is with all the government cutting, with the disability bills, what's going to happen with that? And since I only have a couple minutes... With all these legal matters that Trump is facing with tampering with all these states, how do you see all that playing out with this election coming up? Okay, let me do that one first because we're short on time. All good questions. Let me give you that. March 4th, I think it is, is his first criminal trials, the one in D.C. for election stuff, federal crimes, four four felonies. He's the only defendant. That trial is going to go ahead on March 4th or earlier. And it's a a female black judge, Tanya Chutkin, who Trump has been trashing by tweet, and a D.C. jury that is 90% Democrat. And so here's where I think we're headed. I don't think Donald Trump will ever do that trial. In other words, he's still got five months till that trial comes. When we get close to it, he's going to be thinking this way, which is I'm not going into that courtroom. If I go into that courtroom 
And I go in there five days a week for like eight weeks and sit at the defendant's table. I got to keep my mouth shut and sit there with this judge judging me. I'm screwed. I cannot win that trial. I'm screwed. So I think Donald Trump never does that trial. And what does that mean? He never does it. Well, it means either he pleads guilty and makes a deal or he flees or he tries some stunt to delay the trial. I don't know what he's going to do, but knowing how he hates strong women and especially strong women of color, I don't see him going into that courtroom and putting his fate in the hands of a D.C. jury and then a uh, a woman judge of color. And that's March, March, March 4th. So I think we got about four months or so until something's going to happen with Trump that could change everything. Yeah. And, and, and Congressman, I wish we had more time to address the other issue, but the whole issue of disability there uh, and the ADA being uh, uh, narrowed, uh, there's a Supreme Court case coming up. Uh, it's worrying us so for many of us in the disability community. And well, I don't blame you. I don't, but I, I didn't know. Is there a big push to narrow it? I, I well, never there, hear there, that. There, there's a court case coming up and I'm not an expert, but it goes something like this. Um, uh, it, it, you know, ordinarily, if you're discriminated against, you can, you can go straight to court, right? You can say, I was discriminated against. I, I want uh, restitution or whatever it is. But no, now what they're saying is, before you can go to court, you have to try to settle with the with with the with with the person who caused the problem in the first place. We we're out of time, Le- folks. Legally, and we we don't have time to talk about this. But you know, next it, time, next it, time, mandating. Uh, thank you uh, very much, Congressman, once again for taking the time. We'll have you back on. I will contact you off the air and reschedule uh, another time. And I want to thank everybody else that participated today, Peter and the participants, and especially. Our host, Herbie, thank you very much. Next week, we're going to be having on our program Morgan White, who's a well-known trivia man from the Boston area. He's been on WBZ. A lot of other people know him as well. That'll be next week on In Perspective. I'm Bob Branco. He's Peter Alchel. Go safe with God's abundant blessings. Have a great week, everybody.